more than on just this occasion, but this is an occasion that we have written down in Scripture for us. Jesus has gone before us. Let's read from Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So the devil said to him, You're the Son of God. Command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. And I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So the devil took him to Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until a more opportune time. It's not the only time Jesus went face to face with the devil. There was plenty of opportune times for the devil to try to tempt Jesus. They have a long history together. From the start of the Bible, it was known that Jesus and the devil would do battle. And it was known that Jesus would crush the head of the serpent. Certainly, Jesus was, was tempted once again, as he's pleading to his father, as he's about to go to the cross, God, if, if, this, if there's any other option, can we do this a different way? Not my will, though, Lord, yours. Can you imagine the temptation that Jesus was facing, even from the devil, in that moment, to run with his disciples, to turn away with his disciples, not finish his mission, not accomplish what he had set out to accomplish. Can you imagine? Jesus knew his opponent. He doesn't answer to the devil. He doesn't owe anything to the devil. But we even saw from that interaction between Jesus and the devil, he knows exactly how to face temptation from the devil. He argued with God's word. He fought the devil by placing a higher authority over the devil, God himself, the Father himself, and showing how much greater it is to remain faithful to the Father. Jesus knew his opponent, and Jesus knew what to do against his opponent. 
The title for tonight's message is Aware and Prepared. Aware and Prepared. What are we to be aware of? We're to be aware of the devil and his schemes. What's he like? What's he do? How does he operate? What are his strategies? Why is he like that? And if we're aware, we are more able to be prepared to face temptation. Again, whether it be from our own flesh, our own sin, the allurements of the world, the devil, a combination of all those things, which is usually how it works. If we are aware of how this comes together, or at least we are beginning to become aware, we can be more prepared. So the big idea for tonight's message is, if we are going to stand against the devil and his schemes, we need to be aware of what he's like. If we're going to be aware, if we're going to stand against the devil and his schemes, we need to be aware of what he's like. Our passage will be six, uh, Ephesians 6, 11 through 12, and we'll be bouncing around quite a bit as well. But let me pray first, and then we'll get going. We'll keep going on this. Oh God, we do praise you as the Lord of hosts who is with us. With us through the fire, with us through the storm, with us in the battle. You alone, God, are the victorious one. You alone have all authority in heaven and earth. Everything answers to you, God. Everything falls under your power, your authority, including the devil himself. We praise you, God. There is nobody like you. And, and yet we also confess, oh God, that we do not think of you so highly as we ought to. To whatever degree we're able to because of the stage of life we're in, the knowledge of your word we have or don't have, the, the upbringing we might have or might not have, Lord, all of us fall short of acknowledging you for who you are. All of us also fall short of acknowledging the enemy for for who he is and, and how much we need to resist him by your strength, Lord. We rely on our own strength so often. Or worse, God, we don't even we don't even try. We confess these things, Lord. And so because of these things, God, we, we thank you that through Jesus Christ we can be given new hearts, we can be given new minds that don't only know the fact that we need to resist, don't only know the fact that there is a God and there is a devil, there is heaven, there is hell, but God, because of the new heart that Jesus can grant us because of his blood, Lord, we are actually able to victoriously resist. And so God, I pray for the young guys and gals here once again. Use your word, use the truths that we think about tonight, Lord. May we truly think about them. Consider how, how real and true they are, Lord. May these truths change the way we commit ourselves to you on a daily basis. May we become more faithful to you as a result of tonight and this weekend. For the glory of Christ. We thank you that it's also for our good. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you guys are readers, right? Who likes to read? That's what I thought. You probably read some great books. How about Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire? Anyone read that? Yeah? Good. In Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, 
Harry and the other wizards face off in the Tri-Wizard Cup contests. Pretty exciting times. The champions from each wizarding school are called on to attempt three punishing tasks. Three difficult tasks to take home the Tri-Wizard Cup and 1,000 gallons. How about Hunger Games? How are we familiar with Hunger Games? Books or movies? What are we feeling? Yeah, you guys are readers. Yeah, okay. The cornucopia is the location where the tributes are launched into the arena in the movie Hunger Games. In the cornucopia are all kinds of resources, weapons, food, things like that. Anything they might need for a chance to survive through the fight, right? They might know what's in there, what's available, but they don't know what the arena's like. They don't know what's coming. They don't know what they're about to face, right? Newly designed arena with all its traps and tricks and tortures, and they're blindsided by it. In the far inferior Space Jam of 2021, Inferior to the Space Jam of 1996. Can I get an amen? Amen. That's what I'm talking about. LeBron James would have loved to know that his son had been turned against him as a Super Bowler alongside the evil, greedy, algae rhythm. It's a horrible movie. (laughs) I think. Okay, what do all these cinematic plots have in common? Besides each of them kind of having a strange obsession with putting teenagers in these horrible situations to solve the world's problems and hoping the best. What do they have in common? They call for awareness and preparedness. Harry Potter, they don't know what they're getting into in the Triwizard Cup. Hunger Games, they don't know what they're getting into in the Triwizard Cup. I'm just going to skip LeBron because I stopped caring about that about two minutes ago. But in every case, they would have loved if the enemy could have been more clearly identified. Sure, they may have known some of their opponents, but maybe if the arena had been more clearly explained or they'd had an opportunity to get a glance at it to know what threats were out there, things like that. In every case, they would have loved to be a little bit more aware and prepared. What did you think? More prepared, more able to fight. Here's the thing, I hope when you read in scripture about things like the course of this world that we read in Ephesians 2, when you hear about the prince of the power of the air, the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience, when you hear about cosmic rulers and angelic powers, spirits of darkness, evil forces in the heavenly places, I hope that when you read about these things, you hear about these things, you don't compare them to movies. Don't forget that movies are just pretend imitators of much more serious realities that actually exist in the world. Evil governments with a twisted sense of entertainment and glory, that exists. The looming and unexplainable source of wicked power and bloodlust, that exists in parts of the world. A fascination with an eternal utopia and eternal domination power-hungry people. That exists in the world. A strenuous attempt at depicting that that deep sense of unexplainable hopelessness, which, by the way, you're left to figure out on your own. These 
movies. <laughs> it's much more real than this life. And then hoping for some final good to solve everybody's problems. All of these are actually pretty real realities that exist in our world that are far more serious than even movies can make them out to be. Or perhaps this is a little bit more of a familiar scenario to some of you. Who plays sports in this room? Yeah. Film day. Someone tell me what film day is. Do they not do film day anymore? Maybe you call it something else. Film day. Here's film day. Maybe maybe you call it something else. If you play sports, you likely have something like this where maybe you're a wrestler, maybe you're a basketball player, football player, soccer player, whatever it might be. On a weekly basis, maybe, or on a bi-weekly basis, you watch film, you watch recordings of the, uh, the team you're about to face. You figure out their plays, you figure out uh, who the best players are, where their weaknesses are, where their strengths are. You guys don't do this anymore? Say hello to your new coach. Uh, just kidding. Well, this is the thing, and the purpose of watching that, those kinds of videos is, again, to learn their strengths, their weaknesses, the opponent's common strategies. Why? So that you and your team can prepare to outwork them and outwit them. Tell your coaches they need to start doing this. It's huge help. Alright, this evening, however, we're going to talk about a very real enemy that is more terrible, more merciless than any Voldemort or President Snow. And he's real. He's our enemy. He is God's enemy. He is a kill record longer than the Great Wall of China. He is the birthplace of lying and deception and murder and hatred and sin. He is an army that is far vaster and more advanced and more invisible than all the covert SEAL teams of the world combined. And he works undercover. He is violently opposed to all that is good and true. And he is against everyone who is for Christ. This is our enemy. And if we're going to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, like Ephesians 6 tells us to, if we're going to stand against the schemes of the devil, we need to be aware and ready to identify him. Ready to identify his schemes. Ready to identify how he works. We need the truth about our enemy. So this evening we're talking about the devil. I don't like talking about the devil. I really don't. It's like my least favorite subject, but we have to know the truth about it. And that's what's next in Ephesians 6. As Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, a little bit of context here, that's, that's what's coming next. As he thinks about the next thing he needs to write to this church about, the last thing he needs to write to this church about, it's this. It's the devil and how we need to resist him. A church, the church that he's writing to, by the way, is one that is in the middle of a culture deeply involved with magic and sorcery and idol worship. Did you know that about the city of Ephesus? Oh, no. Just read Acts 19 sometime. There was a violent riot caused in the city streets of Ephesus because of these kinds of things. Because of idolatry and magic and sorcery and all these kinds of things. Paul had been working miracles in Ephesus, powerful miracles in Ephesus, so much to the point where even his handkerchief, if someone were to touch his handkerchief, they would be healed. Is this something that you've heard this in? Acts? Then come along some exorcists, the sons of Sceva. They try to do some miracles in the name of Jesus. They see Paul doing all this stuff. They're like, that looks cool. 
I want to do that. And they try to do miracles in the name of Jesus. The demons tell them, essentially, get lost. We don't know who you are. We know who Paul is. We certainly know who Jesus is. We have no idea who you are. Get lost. And then the exorcists, they get beat up by the demons. And when everyone sees this, like, okay, Paul's legit. Jesus is legit. Those guys not. <laughs> and so they decide, the people in the city of Ephesus, they decide we don't need our sorcery books anymore. Did you know there was sorcery in the New Testament? Yeah. They decide they don't need their sorcery books anymore. And they burn five and a half million dollars worth of sorcery books right there in the presence of Paul. They're like, we're done. We don't need these anymore. We don't want these anymore. Tell us more about this Jesus guy. Then a local silversmith caused an outcry by declaring to people how Paul had been teaching against the goddess that they worshipped named Artemis. And those who didn't burn their books, they hated him because of it. So this talk about demons and evil spirits and the devil, it's very relevant to the Ephesian church, actually. It's relevant to us. Our culture spends billions of dollars on false idols and all kinds of wicked things. So it's relevant to us as well, because we're, we're tempted to be distracted by false idols just as much as the people in Ephesus would have been. So let's learn about the enemy so we can be equipped for battle against his schemes. So let's read Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10 again. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to read the whole passage every time because I want this to become familiar to you guys. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10, and we're going to focus on verse 11. We could get to verse 12, which is more about uh, the demonic forces that Satan works with, but we're going to focus mostly just on the character of the devil himself. So Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There's our verse for this evening. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand an evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. First off, what you need to know this evening is that by researching our enemy's schemes, by doing this, it is actually an act of obedience to the word of God. We are obeying the commands of Scripture as we look into who is the devil, what is he like, how do we need to be aware of him. This isn't just 
Jared making a big deal out of something because he finds it interesting. Though I find it interesting. Write down these passages for proof and come back to them sometime. 1 Peter 5.8, listen to this. How do we know we're supposed to be doing this tonight? Why should, why should we be doing this? 1 Peter 5.8 tells us to be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Write down 2 Corinthians 2.11. Similarly, it says, We must not be outwitted by Satan, nor be ignorant of his schemes. Come on. 2 Corinthians 2.11. 1 Peter 1.13 tells us to prepare our minds for action and be sober-minded once again. Know what you need to know to be ready. Ephesians 4.27 says, give no opportunity to the devil. And of course, our passage this evening, Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. In other words, keeping tabs on the realities of evil that exist under the power of Satan, apparently, very apparently, is key to everyday Christian living. And we'll see why as we move along. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you, I believe it's three points. I'm going to give you a bit of a history of the devil, very brief. I'm going to give you a description of his nature. I'm going to give you some descriptions of his character. So a history of him, his nature, and his character. That's where we're going tonight. And again, the big idea for this evening is if we are going to stand against the devil and his schemes, we need to be aware of what he is like. So, point one. Let's start with a history of the devil. Where did this evil being come from? A couple points on this. First of all, point A. Call it point A. Point A of the history of the devil is Satan is a created being. Satan was created by God. Satan is a created being. How is this helpful to know? Why is this helpful to know for our Christian walk? Very simply, think of it. If Satan is a created being, no, no matter how powerful he is, no matter how much influence he has, if he's a created being, he is not God. And if he is a creator being, if he's a created being, he is less than God and he is owned by God. Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil. That just puts him in his place. The devil is God's devil. The fact that Satan is a creature means he is subject to the creator. Whatever power he does have, he has been given it from God. It's, it's on loan. And God will be taking it back in due time. It's on loan. Whatever activity he's a part of, he's only a part of it because God has given him permission. We see this in the life of Job. Right? Where God allows the devil to tempt and discourage Job so that God can prove his own ability to preserve those who belong to him. We see this in the story of King Abimelech, Judges 9. Satan intends an evil spirit to be used for harm, but it says God intends the harm that is done to serve the purpose of carrying out justice on another unfaithful king. We see that in the, in the, in the life of King Saul, who multiple times throughout 1 Samuel is sent an evil spirit to torment Saul and anger him against David. 
And yet God, once again, has proven to be faithful to his chosen ones by only letting that influence and that power go so far. The devil answers to God. And of course, we see in the Gospels, <laughs> Jesus walks up to a demon-possessed man and says, Get out! You're done! Go! Go! He's like, okay, go in. Go in. The devil answers to God. Because he's created. God and Christ own Satan. And wherever Satan thinks his purposes prevail, he fails to remember that he is a child playing a grown man's game. And he is on a very, very short leash. And God continues to overturn his intentions. And if all of this is true, we don't ultimately have to fear the devil if we belong to God. And only if you belong to God. Because no purposes of the devil can overthrow the purposes of God for his people. Knowing Satan is a created being helps us remember that. So a bit more history on the devil. As a created being, Satan's first appearance is recorded in Genesis 3. You're familiar with it. It's the, it's the fall of man where, where the pollution of sin is introduced to the air of humanity. The tragedy takes place after God's creation of the universe. And interestingly, angels were a part of God's creation, which God declared very good. And I say that's interesting because Satan was among the angels that God created. He was a part of the angels that God created. Now, it's hard to know when, when angels were, were created exactly, but it seems that it was probably before the creation of, of man, before the creation of the heavens and the earth. So it seems that this may have been the sequence to Satan's history, something like this. Angels were created, maybe sometime before man. Satan, or Lucifer, whatever you want to call him, Lucifer being his angelic name, He's among those angels. He gets jealous of God and wants to be like him. He rebels against God, taking down legions of angels with him, which we now call demons. Man is created sometime after that in Genesis 1, and then God declares everything good in Genesis 1, 31. Then finally, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Satan appears. Now, if you were reading those chapters, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, here's something you would notice. Satan appears on the scene of Scripture right after God gives the commission to man to be fruitful and multiply. God says, be fruitful and multiply, go out, fill the earth with my image bearers, enter Satan. And if you think about it, it makes sense. I think it's no coincidence. I think this is, it was written this way partly to show us just how hateful and evil the devil is toward the image bearers of God. By the way, that's you. And that's me. We are image bearers of God. Satan is jealous. So, of course, as soon as God's image bearers are told to fill the earth, he shows up to try to do something. So those are Satan's origins. It's a little bit of his history. Majorly scratching the surface. How about this? Point two. The nature of the devil. If that's a bit of the history of the devil, how about the nature of the devil? Here's the first thing to know about the nature of the devil. Satan is a living, personal being. He is a living, personal being. He's not a concept. He's not a mere spirit. He is a living, personal being. 
We know this because he's described with all sorts of personality traits. Scripture talks about having personality. And we'll see this a bit more as we look at his aliases in a little bit here. Now, why do, I, why do I mention this? Because, most likely, if you've seen any sort of, I don't know, scary movie, or you've, whatever, heard stories, usually evil de or media depicts evil spirits as pretty much just that. They're just evil, angry spirits. And they just want to destroy things. And, sure, that's true of the devil. He's evil, and he's angry, and he loves destruction. That's true. But God display, God's word displays him as actually much more intelligent than that. Much more intelligent than that. He has intellect. He's crafty. He plots and he plans against God. He has the ability to scheme and deceive, which is evidence, again, of his intellect and his emotion and his will and his reason and his personal hatred toward God. He can communicate. We saw that in the passage I read from Luke 4. Speaking with Jesus. He's a personal being. How does this help us think about our own spiritual walk and battle? Well, first of all, it should remove the, the, the stereotypical notion of demons and the devil that might exist in our mind. Just get that out. It's either exaggerated or underrated. Satan and demons, they're not contained to some, some creepy haunted house or creepy haunted corn maze or something like that. You guess what? What's a corn maze? We're in California. You know what a corn maze is. Satan isn't just active among those who, who are clearly demon-possessed. That's not his only domain. They're not, they're not just among... Satan's not just among the, the obvious forms of darkness we see. Satan and his demons, they're much more involved. They're much more intrusive than that. And yet, their work is often invisible. So, so as to be undetected, it's, it's subtle. They work slowly but thoroughly, and their goal is for you to think they have nothing to worry about. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says this. Write that down. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The God of this world, talking about Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What does this indicate? indicates that Satan is the major influence on the ideals of the world, the opinions of the world, the goals of the world, the hopes and the views of the majority of people. He's the primary influence. His influence, I would say, even encompasses and his involvement with the world's philosophies. Even education. It can't be. thoughts, the ideas, the speculations and, and the false religions of the world are under his control and have sprung up from his lies. False gospel, false teaching, origins, Satan. Origins, demonic influences. So we need to be sober-minded. We need to know how to discern those things, right? We need to know how to be able to sniff those things out. And we need to be able to discern whether our thoughts and our desires, your thoughts, your desires, are being influenced by the truth of God's wisdom or by the lies of the world's system, the lies of the devil's system. 
And all of this is just a reminder that Satan is a personal being with personal particular hatred for God's people and a personal vendetta against the work of Christ in our lives. The battle is painfully personal because Satan is a personal being. It feels personal, doesn't it? Why is obedience so hard? Why, why is this battle going on in my mind? Like, like Paul even talks about that. I, I know what I should do, and yet I, I, I don't do it. I know what I shouldn't do, and yet I do it. And there's this constant battle between the flesh and the spirit. And why does this feel so personal? Because it is. There's an enemy against you that wants to keep you from obeying your creator. So that's a little bit about the nature of the devil. How about the character of the devil? Point three, the character of the devil. Okay, so he's a created being. He's personal. He's a personal being. What else do we know about him? Satan has gone by many names throughout history. Many, many names throughout history. And his scriptural names tell us a lot about him. It's not as common nowadays for like your name to mean something. It's not as common to, to have that nowadays, but when Scripture gives Satan a name, it has a reason. And these names that are going to define his, his character, show us what his character is, they continue to prove that he is a personal being with many dimensions to his evil character. And it proves that he has zero good intentions. Not a single ounce of good intentions exist in him. So knowing his names will help us in the daily fight. How? Well, his names tend to describe what he's like. A dog in the Czech Republic that I got to hang out with for six days straight, his name was Fichek. Fichek. And it means little spot. The dog had little spots. The name told me what he was like. Fichek. Now you know a Czech phrase. Czech word, Fichek. Or sometimes I would say Fichku, and I don't know, little Fichek? Still figuring this out. Anyways, the point is, his name told us what he was like. He's a dog with little spots. Great, Fichek. Okay, so then why does scripture call our enemy what it calls him? Because his name describes his schemes and his methods and his character. So, we need to be able to look at the influences of the world in our life and determine, based on what we know from his character, determine if we're overlooking Anywhere that we're being influenced by the lies of the devil, the character of the devil. So here's some names. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quiz you a little bit. So uh, get your quiz hats on. Satan. Does anyone know what Satan means? Good. So this is new. Satan. It literally just means adversary. It means adversary. He is opposed to everything God is for. We call him Satan because he is an adversary and he is adverse to God's purposes. He is against God's purposes. So you can know that any time that you are wanting to draw near to God through prayer, through time in the Word, through obedience, through evangelism, through whatever it might be, through worship and song, you can know that at any point your adversary is doing whatever he can to oppose your efforts. It could be... I'm not going to get into those examples. Again, our flesh is equally responsible for these distractions and these sins and things like that, but I, I, I'm going to keep saying the devil is the, the prince of the power of the air. He is the, the god of this world, as scripture 
talks about him as, and so he knows how to present a platter that suits your fancy and is a nice distraction for you. And he can't make you sin. He can't tell you to sin. He can't cause, but he can, pro he can provide the opportunity. He's not sovereign, but he is able. So that's Satan. That's what he's. That's just what he does. He's he's an adversary. He is against us. He's against God. How about devil? You guys know what the name devil means? Good. I'm glad this is all new to you. Wonderful. The name devil, one who engages in slander, slanderer. The devil is a slanderer. Why would Satan want to slander us? And and. And who would he slander us to? Like, who would he go talk to? He'd be like, have you seen this guy? Have you seen this girl? Well, God. He slanders us to God. He points us out to God. And he says, look at that failure. Look, they messed up again. Can you believe how, how, how hateful and twisted and, and gross their mind is? Their, their heart? Can you believe the way that, that she's betrayed you? What kind of son would treat his father like that? And he accuses us, he slanders us to the father, to God. So just maybe as a side note, we should remember this too, that when we engage, when we engage in slander, we are engaging in the very thing that Satan's name means, rather than the devil's name means. You engage in something Satan loves when you slander someone. You should be aware of that. How are you speaking of other people? He's also called the accuser. And I'm not going to ask you what that means. It's pretty obvious. The accuser. Similar to slander, but here's the difference. When he slanders us, that was the previous one, when he slanders us, he talks to God about our failures. When he accuses us, he talks to us about our failures. Our conscience. Again, I don't know the mysteries of how this works, but I know he's the accuser. <laughs> and, and I know that, he, that, that we can feel at times an undue weight of guilt that has actually been forgiven by Christ, and yet the accuser says, you're not forgiven, you're not forgiven, you're not forgiven, you should feel bad, you should never go back to God because you're never going to make it, you're never going to do it right. He's, a, he's an accuser, and he talks to us about our failures. Yeah, I'm not going to claim to know the mysteries of how it all works, but Scripture says he's the accuser. He says things like, how, how can you even live with yourself? How, how can you even think you deserve to be a child of God? He's right, by the way. You don't deserve to be a child of God. But we need to believe in God's grace, which, which generously makes us his own. Do you feel this? Have you ever have you ever felt accused? Have you ever felt that, that guilty conscience of, of accusation? You're confronted by the reality of your sin, and aren't you tempted to doubt God's grace? I've been there. God, there's no way you could forgive me again. I've, I've asked forgiveness hundreds of times. I was mean again. I was prideful again. I was selfish again. I was angry again. I was greedy again. Did I say that? I greedy again. And I've doubted God's grace before. What's happening when we do this? When we doubt God's grace, what's happening? We are believing God's grace isn't enough. 
We're buying into the lies and the accusations of Satan. We are failing to believe that God is who he says he is and that his gospel can do what he says it can do. So we need to ask God for forgiveness. We need to ask God to cause us to have faith that Satan's accusations will fall flat before God, that God ignores Satan's accusations, God ignores his, his blame because he has been faithful and just to forgive our sins in Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 9 says, says to the devil, yeah, I know he did that, but my son already paid for it, so we're good. He's still my child. So he's called the accuser. As I'm going, I'm trying to show you, like, how does this help us think rightly about our walk as we think about who the devil is? He's called the serpent. Genesis 3, 1 through 6 and, and other places, but he's called the serpent. And on one hand, this might speak of his craftiness, his subtlety, his beguiling nature, his trickery. But in a more literal sense, it's helpful for us to think of him this way as well. As Jewish readers would have read it, when, when Satan's called the, the serpent in Genesis 3, as they would have understood it, this doesn't only speak to the corruptness of his character, but to the demise of his destiny, that, that he has been brought low, that he has been brought to the earth, to the ground. He is literally a dust eater, is what the word means. He is a dust eater, one who goes about on his belly, because that's where he belongs. Stay down, Satan. On his belly. That's where he belongs. That's He's given a name of shame. The prince of the power of the air. You've heard that one. Again, Ephesians 2. The prince of the power of the air. What is this talking about? It describes the power and the scope of his influence. The power and the scope. The level of power and the, the, the reach of his influence. And we see that in Ephesians 2. The course of this world is following the leadership and the design of Satan. Does that mean God is off the throne? No. Like we said, God has given him temporary influence over the world. And the course of the world, the thinking of the world, the love of the world is following after the leadership and the design of Satan for anyone who is not a child of God. That's what they're doing. If you're not a child of God, that's what you're doing. If you're not, if you are a child of God, that's who you used to be. You used to follow the prince of the power of the air. And the power of the air probably just referred, it could refer to a few things. The power of the air could refer to the legions of demons he oversees. Because we see them described in Ephesians 6, 12. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness quite the list. Spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Prince of the power of the air to be describing those masses of, of demons that he oversees. He oversees them. He rules them. He organizes them. He mobilizes them. Could be that. Could just mean that he's the, the prince of the power of this age. The, the age, the, the time of humanity that we exist in. In every age that man exists, Satan is the prince of the power of that age. And he is influencing that age. And he is misleading that age. And he is deceiving that age. Probably what, it, what it's referring to as well. He's the prince of the power of the air. We'll move a bit faster through these last few. He's called the tempter. 
Paul writes it out in 1 Thessalonians 3.5. He's the tempter. 1 Thessalonians 3.5. For this reason, when I could bear no longer, this is what it says, when I could bear no longer, I sent to learn about your faith to, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. That was Paul's fear that he wrote to them um, and, and he wanted to come to them because he was fearful that temptation had led the church to be ineffective, unfruitful. He's the tempter. And from that we see that the reason the devil wants to tempt us is to make us unuseful to God. Useless to God. That's, that's his aim. So Paul says, when we experience affliction or pain or discouragement, we experience all the flood of temptations that come with pain, discouragement, and affliction. Paul says our concern should be that we do not fall prey to the tempter who desires to make us ineffective and unuseful in those times. The book of Revelation calls Satan another name. What do you think I'm going to say? What's, when we think of Revelation, it's a name of Satan that comes to mind. What? Yeah, you got it. Sweet. My college students didn't get that. The dragon. What does this talk about? It's like des desolation of smog type stuff. What is this? No. But it does have to do with destruction. The devil is destructive. There's nothing constructive about Satan's ways. He loves destruction. He only seeks to undo anything that is righteous or good. He is destructive. He hates truth, he hates holiness, he hates righteousness, and he wants to undo it. He is destructive. It's kind of what we should think of when we hear him called the dragon. John 8.44 says Satan has been a murderer from the beginning. You give that as a name to him. He's been a murderer from the beginning. He loves death. He loved causing spiritual death by introducing Adam and Eve to sin. And he loves death still today. And I would say the devil rejoices in and is involved with anything that intentionally brings about death. And he loves the destruction of God's image bearers. That's why you see in like demon-possessed stories in Scripture that they've been cutting themselves and scraping themselves and smashing themselves with rocks and throwing themselves into the fire and into wells and off of cliffs. Because the devil loves the destruction of God's image bearers. He wants to mar them. He wants to erase it however he can. He loves death. Last one, he's, he's the father of lies. John 8, 44. Okay. This doesn't just describe his words. It does do that. All of his words are lies, but it's also indicative of his character, which means if he is the father of lies, he is opposed to the truth of God. 100%. That's why cults exist. It's why false religions exist. It's why false teachers exist. I would say it's why progressive Christianity exists. If you don't know what that is, we can talk about it. It's why the prosperity gospel exists. It's why Rob Bell and Richard Rohr are still influential, so on and so forth. That's like this. Because he's the father of lies, and he'll do whatever he can to be involved with the buzzing the truth. And it's why we so often believe sin is okay, because... Satan is good at hiding lies, right? He's good at hiding lies. Just a little bit of sin here. 
little bit more, a little bit more, and eventually you're chained to it. I'm gonna keep bringing that up. This is gonna be loud. He's good at hiding lies, and we're good at believing. So we need God's word, we need truth, we need each other, we need the reminder of the gospel every single day of our life. Well, I think we're becoming a little bit more aware of his schemes, right? A little bit? Even just scratching the surface? He's amazingly effective at making lies believable. He's amazingly effective at making sin desirable. Temptation, unavoidable, and error, irresistible. So what is our weapon? How do we fight this? How do we fight an enemy that has existed for thousands of years, who is a fallen angel, who has been practicing his trade for all these years? How do we... How do we fight this? We hear about an enemy like this, and we've got to be thinking, how on earth am I supposed to keep up with him? How on earth am I supposed to win against that? Here it is. You can't, but Christ has. You can't, but Christ has. Listen to these verses and write them down. In fact, I'm going to have you, I'm going to have you turn to them, because we need to read these. Listen to these verses, write them down. This is how we fight. We fight with these kinds of truths. Turn to Ephesians 1.20. Ephesians 1.20 How do we fight? We remember these kinds of truths of the gospel. The devil might have power over rulers and authorities and dominions, and he might do battle with us in the heavenly places, but listen to Ephesians 1.20. Listen to what it tells us. There is one greater than this. The one who God raised from the dead, Ephesians 1.20, and sat him at the right hand in the heavenly places, heavenly places, Apparently the devil operates there. But listen, far above. Set him in the heavenly places, far above all rule, all authority, all power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, in the age to come. Here's where the devil operates in the heavenly places and the evil realms. Jesus is above those things. Satan does not have jurisdiction over those areas. He has influence, but Jesus is above him in all of earth and all the universe and all of time. Jesus is above him. And then Ephesians 1, it's still in that same passage. It says, God has put all things under Jesus' feet. Again, that means he's above it. He is king over it. And gave him, gave him as head over all things to who? You. To the church. This Jesus, who is above everything, has been given to you. He is your friend. He is your brother. He is your king. He is your savior. He is yours. If you are his. If you have King Jesus on your side, you're untouchable. How did he become yours? Turn to Colossians 2. How did he become yours? And how did you become his? How, how does this even happen? What, what makes this possible? Because the devil's right. There's all kinds of debt that's piled up against me. There's all kinds of sin that's piled up against me. I am actually guilty, like the devil says I am. So how does this work? How does Jesus become mine? How do I become his? Colossians 2, starting in verse 13. And you 
who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. He has forgiven us all our trespasses, all the trespasses that the accuser accused you of. Forgiven. Verse 14, how? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Cancel, eliminated, crossed off, gone. Your debt, canceled. These things, these dead souls that we were, these trespasses, these debts, these legal demands for justice upon our sin, what did Jesus do with them? It says, he set them aside and he nailed them to the cross. <laughs> Your debts were crucified. And Jesus can be your Savior because of that. What happened when you did this? Verse 15. This is amazing. This is like the most epic scene I, I could ever imagine in all of Scripture. What happened when he did this? Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame. And he triumphed over them. Disarmed, weapons knocked out of their hands, thrown on the ground, thrown, put into open shame, and he's triumphing over them. Foot on their neck. Victorious. Put them to shame like a clumsy school kid tripped up in a jump rope. <laughs> or an air ball. Or a soloist on center stage who forgot their part. Open shame. Here's who the devil really is. The devil was shown to be the loser he is for thinking he could stand against Christ. When Jesus nailed our sin to the cross. He said, devil, you got nothing against them. I've covered it. Nice try, though. I like to imagine Jesus being a little sarcastic. Okay, finally turn to Revelation 12.10. Again, this is our this is our weaponry. This is our arsenal. This is the, these are the kinds of truth we need to fight the spiritual battle with. It doesn't get better than these. So if you're walking with Christ, you can rest assured that you are guaranteed victory with him if you would fight with his armor. Revelation chapter 12 starting in verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. How do we know? How do we know? How do we know that salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come in the very next phrase? For the accuser of our brethren, brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And how did those who had been accused day and night before God conquer the devil throughout the entirety of their life? Look at verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even to death. You conquer the enemy by loving Christ and not yourself. You conquer the enemy by loving the blood of the Lamb and not yourself. You conquer the enemy by choosing this Savior who nailed your sin to the cross. Choosing Him and not the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's how you conquer the enemy. And one day your accuser will be thrown down once and for all under the foot of Christ. 
You may live in a world that Satan rules over right now, but you do not have to be ruled by him. We have a vicious foe. But we have a victorious friend. And knowing this can make you aware and prepared for the walking and warring that Christ calls you to if you are his child. Tomorrow we'll learn how to use the armor. Let's pray. Christ, we praise you as, as the victorious one. All of heaven.